Bibles. Everybody say word. We are in Acts chapter 23. You can turn there in your Bible or you can scroll there on your phone or you can follow behind me because we always have the verses up behind me. As you all know, last week I let you in uh, a little bit on what I've been feeling as I've been going through the book of Acts. And truth be told, up until last week, I've been feeling like the last part of the book of Acts is kind of boring. I hate to say that, and that's just what I was feeling, and I shared that with some of the staff members, and my thought was, well, I'll just expedite and quickly go through the last part of the narrative of the book of Acts, and then we can move on to something else. But the Lord really has put the brakes on, and I've come to see that these last chapters of the book of Acts, while it's tempting to move quickly through them, the Lord has actually slowed us down. We're going to go through the remainder of the book of Acts, because here's a couple of thoughts. The life of Paul is one of the greatest examples of godly steadfastness that we find anywhere in the scriptures. His example of prioritizing the gospel even over his own life is not only a great encouragement, it is contagious. And I pray that we do catch that same courage of steadfastness. I'm also reminded that no page of the Bible should be left unstudied. And it's very tempting for us to practice Passover. That is, we pass over large sections of Scripture and move on to things that we find more entertaining or exciting. And, and I want to strongly discourage the, the desire for entertainment. We have a, a, a strong undercurrent of culture in the church that is striving to entertain. And that, that becomes a problem because that's not our purpose. Our purpose, too, is, in, is to engage and encounter a living God. And so I want to I strongly discourage us from leaving passages unstudied, and so we're going to look at it. And then, honestly, truth be told, every time I try to hurry up, the Lord says, stop. And so I'm just going to go ahead and obey him, if that's okay. You all agree with that? Okay, here's the deal. We're going to get into the text. Have you ever felt attacked? Have you ever felt, and maybe it's not even a feeling, maybe it's like it's actually happening that people have it out for you. Have you ever been that guy or gal that walks up to the conversation and you can tell very quickly they were just talking about you? You ever been in that moment where you walk in and all of a sudden the group's like, oh, uh, hey, we were talking about crocheting. And you know they were not talking about crocheting. They're just not the crocheting type. Have you ever feared uh, that there are those who may be plotting your destruction or seeking your downfall? I mean, it could be a coworker, a family member, a neighbor, a person, or persons that you were once friends with. There are times where I assume that all of us will feel attacked. In fact, the scriptures tell us that as we walk out the Christian life, we're going to face adversity and we're going to face attack. We're guaranteed of that, just for our witness. And in fact, the scriptures tell us that not only is it from other people this attack we will face, we actually all have an enemy. Who is our enemy, family? Satan. He is real. The demonic is real, and we really do face an adversary who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. And it leaves us to wonder, how should we respond in such seasons and circumstances when people have it out for us? And it may not even be people. It may be even ourselves. Sometimes we ourselves have it out for ourselves, the, the difficulties of our own psychology, and some of the old-timers and the ancients would record the dark seasons of the soul where we ourselves are attacking ourselves. Have you ever been there? 
With those questions in mind, we turn back to the book of Acts. Paul is in prison. He is under the watchful and caring eye of Claudius Lysias, the Roman tribune. As we've come to see, he is leading an investigation into why the Jews are so steadfast and so focused on putting Paul to death. Their adamancy has caused him to get involved. Paul has been in custody for a few days now. The High Jewish Council has just completed their first round of interrogation. In fact, Claudius Lysias had to intervene because the council itself got into such an uproar. Paul was, was risking being torn limb from limb. And so Paul is now back in his jail cell in the heavily fortified fortress of Antonia in Jerusalem. And I can imagine at this point Paul is becoming quite anxious as to what might be his fate. I, I want to stop us from the typical... Uh, approach that we take with certain persons in the Bible where we elevate them almost to like superhuman status, where they for some reason don't, don't face the same anxieties and fears and trials that we do, but somehow they sailed above them. I assure you, Paul is just like us. He is anxious and he is worried. In fact, it is late within the evening that the Lord appears to Paul while he's chained in his cell and offers Paul, and I pray offers us some level of encouragement this morning. I feel like some of us need encouragement. It seems like sorrow is always at our footsteps. Acts chapter 23, verse 11. The text says the following night, that is pregnant with meaning, the following night, that is right after Paul was almost torn limb from limb, He's now in his jail cell late in the night. The night watches. It is there that the Lord stood by him. Great comfort from his proximity. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must. As a statement of sovereignty. Not only will you, but you must testify also in Rome. I find great comfort in seeing the Lord appear to Paul in the night. I think that is where we find our day's most restless hours. You see, it is during the day we can carry on with stout shoulders and a stiff upper lip. We can keep ourselves busy. But it is in the night where we are left alone with our anxious mind and heart, insecure souls. Many of us, I believe, have spent sleepless nights tossing and turning in worry. Those hours are long spent, wearied. It was in that late hour of anxiety and loneliness that the Lord stood near Paul, and the Lord drew near to Paul in his crisis. I'm going to give you a statement, a principle. I should write this down. You may look at it and you go, that doesn't have any application in my life right now. It will. It will. When we are in crisis, there is great comfort in the Lord's closeness. I'll say it again. When we are in crisis, there is great comfort in the Lord's closeness. You see, the Lord not only came to bring comfort through proximity to Paul, he also came to bring a message that would stir courage in his heart. The Lord told Paul to to take courage. Another way of rephrasing that is, do not be afraid. Out of curiosity, why do you believe the Lord told Paul not to be afraid? 
probably because he was afraid. The Lord was delivering a message to Paul that he much needed. And he had legitimate reasons to be afraid, didn't he? He needed courage. I mean, think about it. He, he's currently incarcerated by Rome. He has already been condemned by the Jews. It's only a matter of time where Rome finally concedes to the will and plan of the Jews and hands Paul over to his most assured death. I mean, just a short reading of the Gospels shows us that is the process in the life of Christ Paul, not seeing himself superior to Jesus, is probably assured at this moment of his own demise, suffering at the hands of the Jews. But the Lord had other plans for Paul. That no matter what was being hatched or devised by the, Jew, the Jewish antagonists, and assuredly they were devising plans, Paul was not going to die in Jerusalem. There are times where we are assured of our own downfall, our own death, our own suffering. And we need to be reminded that no matter what adversity we face, the Lord's will will be carried out. There's a verse of Scripture that has great application to the passage we are studying and I think to our own lives. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17, we will see this fulfilled in the life of Paul. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. That is Isaiah the prophet recording the Lord's word for Israel and their, their future promises. But nonetheless, great application in the life of Paul. Because at the moment, while Paul is being encouraged by the Lord, there are weapons being fashioned, there are arguments being fixed and created and ready to be presented but no matter what he faced, Paul would make it to Rome. I love how Dr. Constable renders this concept. Hard steel or a hot tongue would not prosper. In fact, we are assured that just as Paul testified in Jerusalem, he would also in Rome. But one thing the Lord did not say, he said he would make it to Rome. He must testify there. He never said it was going to be easy. He never said it wasn't going to involve conflict or adversity. In fact, those are assured, but you will make it. I think we have a misunderstanding when it comes to sorrow. I've come to discover that we never get too far ahead of it. It's always nipping at our heels. There are times where sorrow will catch up for a moment, and then we will get just in front of it, but there it is right behind us. Every time we have a delicious meal... Right behind it may come indigestion, right? Every time there's a great party, there's always cleaning up. <laughs> it's always chomping at our heels. Jesus assured Paul that he would make it to Rome, but sorrow would be his constant companion. This message could not come at a more opportune time because that exact morning as the sun was rising, so was a clandestine plan to have Paul put to death. Look at verse 12. The text says, When it was day, that is, the day following the night, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. I mean, think about this. They are so devout in their zealousness, they are, they are making an oath, a devout oath to not eat nor drink until they had spilled the blood of Paul. 
There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. We have no record of their names of these soon-to-be-starving and dehydrated zealots. Can you all see the irony in their plan? Do you see the high irony? The Lord has just spoken to Paul of what is going to happen. Their willingness to make this severe, rash oath is a warning to us all. Be careful. Be careful when you plan and plot somebody's downfall. You may be encouraged to sign that email chain or be a part of that petition or join in with the pursuit of somebody else's fall. Being a part of a conspiracy has definitely been something that has elicited positive results in us or desire to be involved in. Don't give in. I quote here from John Stott, even the most careful and cunning of human plans cannot succeed if God opposes them. Because based upon what we've just read, these men, if they hold to their oath, they not only won't succeed, they're soon to die of thirst. For their blade will not be made wet with the blood of Paul. The conspiracy widens beyond the 40. In fact, it is going to encompass the entire high Jewish council, which comes to show us this, that godly people can agree to do some really ungodly and even sinister things. We're going to see people who were known as godly engaging in in really unscrupulous behavior, being justified as they are doing the Lord's work. Verse 14. They went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, We've strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. What is missing is a response from the high Jewish council of saying, No! It stands against the Torah. This is inconsistent with godly behavior and planning. There will be no one to intervene in their planning. No godly witness or testimony among the council. And really, in their rashness, you see the necessary lack of foresight, which often happens when we quickly plot somebody's demise. See, they're calling for Paul to be brought down to the council, and along the way, 40 men are going to jump on Paul and kill him, but that would also necessitate killing Roman soldiers, which would immediately bring about a heavy response from Rome upon Jerusalem and the Jews. (laughs) They were lacking needed foresight for sure in their plan. But as a part of the sovereign will of God, this plan makes it no farther than the initial conspiracy, because in verse 16, we come to meet one of Paul's relatives. We often don't think about Paul in terms of having a sister or having a nephew. I don't want us to go too far with this, but it is interesting to see that Paul had family in Jerusalem. We don't know if they agreed with Paul's testimony of Jesus, if they were believers or not. But we see a nephew in verse 16, son of Paul's sister, who heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. So he is able to enter in to the fortress of Antonia. And I say this specifically, students that are in here. This young man who is left unnamed 
is going to be used to steer the course of history. We think to ourselves that our age sometimes limits our ability to be used by God, but I want to show you right here in the text a young man who was most likely a teenager who by his testimony will steer the direction of human affairs and events in history. Powerful stuff. Verse 17, his nephew enters in, tells Paul. Paul immediately called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say. Just briefly, something that stuck out in my mind as I've been studying the book of Acts, is through the narrative how Paul has been known. Through the book of Acts, we have seen Paul as Saul of Tarsus, the participant in Acts chapter 7. As they laid their coats at a young man by the name Saul, as they put to death the first martyr of the church in Stephen. In chapter 8, we saw Paul, the murderous persecutor, who, as the scriptures record, ravaged the early church. Chapter 9, we meet Paul the penitent, whose repentance and coming to know the Lord for himself, receiving him as his Savior. Quickly, Paul the preacher, and Paul the church planter, and then Paul the persecuted. And now we meet Paul the prisoner, as he will be known through the remainder of the narrative of the book of Acts. Paul's nephew is described as a young man. It is a descriptor that is only found in the book of Acts. It is always relating to somebody roughly his teenage years. And Claudius Lysias is going to receive his testimony. And on the testimony of this young man, he is going to act. Verse 19, when you have a word to speak, speak it, students. Do not allow your age to keep you from speaking. You hear me? Yes? Amen? Y'all hear that? If you have a word to speak, if it is from God, speak it. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it you have to tell me? I see a very tender and receptive heart in this Roman soldier. He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. You could hear his heart, but do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed them. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. You can hear the heartfelt concern in these words. Paul clearly and accurately, his nephew, relays the conspiracy to the Roman tribune. And in this moment, he is about to act. He tells the young boy or the young man to, to keep his plan or what has been revealed secret, sends him away, quickly makes plans to have Paul relocated under heavy guard. Paul is going to travel deep like he is a dignitary of Rome. Look at verses 23 and following. Claudius Lysias called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to, to Felix, the governor. This is a large delegation of Roman soldiers encompassing half 
of all Roman soldiers stationed in Jerusalem. Paul has provided 200 foot soldiers, 70 mounted cavalry, and 200 spearmen who carried a heavy javelin that they wielded with deadly accuracy to transport him to Caesarea. Paul is on his first leg of the journey to Rome, all being commissioned to transfer him to Caesarea under the fall of night at 9 p.m. to take him north, all in an effort to get him to Caesarea to the then governor of Judea, a man by the name of Felix, who we will meet a little bit more intimately next week as we look at the text. But look at verse 25. Along with the soldiers and along with Paul, Claudius Lysias, and you may be wondering throughout this narrative as I've been talking about, how do I know his name is Claudius Lysias? Where did I get that? Uh, from the letter he wrote. <laughs> he, addressed it to, he addressed it to Felix and gave his own name. Claudius Lysias, and I love this, we have a, an ancient letter written from a Roman tribune to a Roman governor, we have it preserved here in the scriptures, this ancient letter, whether full text or just an effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. You will notice that Claudius leaves some stuff out. How did, how did Claudius, by the way, figure out Paul was a Roman uh, citizen? Well, there was that whole stretching him out to be flogged thing. You ever, like, relay a story, but you leave out some details that may not leave you in a positive light? You ever do that? Claudius Lysias relays the good stuff and kind of omits the whole, oh, yeah, I stretched out a Roman citizen, almost flogged him. I know it's a no-no. He left that out. Desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the council. I found that he was being accused regarding theology, questions of the law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. He escalates the file. He says, look, there's a big uprising about to happen in Jerusalem, and it's all centering on this guy. I can't really figure out what the issues are, so I'm sending him to you to kind of sort this matter out. You're my superior, so he sends it over to Felix to get to the bottom of why Paul is at the center of such an uprising. In verse 31, Paul is then transferred to Felix for a formal Roman trial. Verse 31 so, so the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. Guess what I'm going to show you? There is no message without a map, right? Oh, it's so good. I don't have my laser pointer. Sorry. But there's a line. Do you all see the line? Okay, I was hoping that it would be clear. Paul is in the right quadrant. Some of you are like, I can't see it. Well, it's there in the right. He's at Jerusalem. He's being traveled, uh, carried 37 miles to the northwest to a city called Antipatris. They are traveling through a very rugged Judean hill country. So think Austin hill country, only a little bit more rugged and a little bit more dangerous because people are actually seeking his life. And so they caravan through the hill country till they get to the city of Antipatris late in the morning. I guess this would be late in the evening, early morning. The soldiers, the foot soldiers and the spearmen make their way back to Jerusalem. The 70 horsemen, the cavalry, carries Paul the rest of the way to Caesarea, verse 32. On the next day, they, being the soldiers, returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. 
When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from to see if it was under his jurisdiction. When he learned he was from Cilicia, that is Tarsus, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. He is afforded some freedom while staying in Herod's praetorium. In fact, friends will begin to visit Paul, as we'll see next week. But five days later, just five days later, Paul is going to face his accusers. They are going to bring carefully crafted arguments that will be presented by the silver-tongued spokesman, Tertullus. We have just seen Paul face a mob of armed religious zealots. Their weapons and their plans failed. Next week, we will see Paul face carefully crafted arguments. We are assured they too will fail. Paul is on his first leg to Rome, now in the port city of Caesarea, where we will pick up next week. And so let's talk about some applications. How do we live this passage we've studied out? How do we apply it to our own lives today? The first application that comes to mind revolves around crisis, when we are in crisis. We spend so much of our life attempting to avoid sorrow and difficulty. We're conditioned to pretend, to fake it, to medicate it, and even avoid it. But it is often during those times of sorrow and suffering that our intimacy with Christ is intensified. We grow in intimacy with Jesus through suffering. It's the paradox of the Christian life. I wish I could tell you that we grow in intimacy when life is good, when we're enjoying that nice mixed drink, watching the sunset in the Bahamas. <laughs> Those are nice moments, aren't they, family? I don't really know. I've never been. So if you do ever think of sending me anywhere, Bahamas sound great. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I wish we grew through times that were, were easy and everything went smoothly and everything went according to plan. But for some reason, our spiritual life hinges at times on suffering when it relates to intimacy with Jesus. I'm going to re re package this. I'm going to give it to you again. When we are in crisis, there is great comfort in the Lord's closeness. There, this is no cr Christian cliche. This is not the syrupy sentimentality of misplaced optimism. No, family. Our Christian faith has been built to withstand suffering. In fact, it's one of the great byproducts of a growing Christian life because it's not if we will suffer in this life. It's only when. We will face suffering. I find nothing more tragic and heartbreaking than watching a person face suffering with no foundation of faith. No greater hope to grab a hold of. I'm coming to see the more I live life that my greatest hope is not that I will get better. Or that my circumstances will somehow improve. Or the sun will come out tomorrow, tomorrow. Or that in every trial I'll be victorious because that's just not reality. My greatest hope is Jesus. And I've come to discover that suffering leaves one of my feet on earth and I start tiptoeing into eternity with the other. See, hope that is held within our hands is not hope. Who hopes for something they possess? 
We hope for something we do not have, and suffering makes our hearts ache for eternity. When our hope will be actualized, as the scriptures say, today we see dimly, we will then see clearly face to face. Suffering reminds us of our greatest hope. My prayer today is that we may not grieve as others who do grieve with no hope or who medicate with no hope or try to be optimistic with no hope. We have the greatest hope, and I pray your hope and trust in Christ increases this morning and in the days to come. We will have plenty of opportunity to take that class, the class of crisis and suffering. Secondly, no weapon formed. I see this clearly in the life of Paul. I'm going to preface this by saying there are mountains of false teaching built on the verse I'm going to read to you. Isaiah 54, verse 17, I hear it all the time, teaching, providing individuals a false sense of security or even arrogant pride that in the flesh will be more than conquerors and I can just walk over people and that's not what the scriptures are teaching. In fact, back to the paradox of the Christian life. Family, did you know that true Christian conquest does not come about through brash boldness? It comes through brokenness. True Christian conquest, it comes through humility and peacemaking, not through hardness and puffed up pride. True Christian conquest comes through dying to self to serve Christ and others. It's not through self-protection and self-exaltation. It is a willingness to seek the kingdom of God first, knowing that all of the things that we need will be added to our life. It is that quiet and patient listening ear straining for Christ to speak and hearing the words, be courageous, Christian soldier. Do not lose heart. Do not be afraid. You will fulfill the purposes that God has for you. He never says it will be easy or that we won't face conflict or difficulty or sorrow or even attack. And as we mature in our faith, we come to discover the greatest good is not my good. The greatest good is that the Lord's will be done, that he be glorified, that all things for your good and for your glory. And the byproduct of that is also my good. I come to discover when I walk in the will of the Lord, weapons will be formed, arguments will be crafted. But when you walk in the footsteps of Christ, seeking his kingdom first, those who attempt to oppose his plan and his will will be found to fight against God. And I'll tell you, there is one opponent I do not want to take on. <laughs> if there's somebody I want on my side, let it be the Lord. Amen. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but I trust in the Lord our God. I pray that encourages your heart. And then finally, I'm about to get really real. Step on some toes. Should I? No. Should I? Can I preach it? Can I preach it? You can't? There's no refunds. You guys are going to be stuck with this the whole day. Plotting a person's downfall. We live in a world that has become consumed literally consumed with seeing people fall. It's delicious to see a celebrity or a politician or a coworker or an enemy or an ex-whoever. 
or for the X's. We love to see them fall. It's insidious. It's inconsistent with our testimony. And what's even worse in our culture, it doesn't even matter any longer if the accusations are true. We as a culture have become vile consumers of the grossest kind. I was recently watching a program where the peripheral character was accused of a heinous crime. It wasn't true. There was no evidence. But through digging through the person's past, they were able to find enough dirt on them, and they loosely associated them to the crime, and the community cried out, guilty! He was turned against, threatened, and terrorized until he ultimately committed suicide, and then the community was confronted with their own brutality. I don't know about you, but I don't know how many of our lives would withstand heavy scrutiny of our pasts. If there's one place I don't want the magnifying lens to fall, it's in some of the darker shadows of my own heart and life. Can you all relate to that? Yes. I believe our testimony is that Christ can and will forgive the sinner. Do you agree with that? That all of us fall short of the glory of God. That Christ died on the cross for our failings and our sins and our wretchedness. And that in him we pass from death to life, from blindness to sight. That though our sins are as scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. Does that connect with any of you? That's our testimony, isn't it? Be careful. There is nothing of Christ or of love with our fascination of tearing people down or watching them fall or constantly digging in people's past to find their failings. That might be great fodder for CNN and Fox News, but that is not the fodder of our Christian witness. Amen? Mm -hmm. It's just not Jesus. Forty men swore not to eat or drink until Paul's blood was shed. How long is it before they broke their oath, you think? A couple hours. hours. Uh, That wouldn't work out very well. Paul's not here. I guess I'll go get a sandwich. An entire Jewish council had heard the plan, they endorsed it, and in the end, it failed. Setting out to tear someone else down, this is a great testimony against it. Allow the scripture to speak. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. I thank you for our attention and just the clarity of principles that you've brought to the surface. Lord Jesus, I am not a fan of suffering. I run from sorrow as fast as I can, but it keeps catching up. Please remind me and remind us that the goal is not to avoid suffering, but it is to grow in our intimacy with you, Jesus, through it. I can feel the sadness and the heavy hearts in this room this morning. I pray pray that your presence would be medicinal to our hearts and our souls. You are near. In fact, your word tells us that your presence is within us. And so our Prince of Peace, we ask for peace. God of all comfort, we ask for comfort. And even though we may not ever get the answer to the question why, I pray that our trust and faith grows. We have great hope in you, Jesus, the greatest hope. Give us humility when we think of or speak of others. 
I pray that we are known by our charity, our forgiveness, and our gracious spirits, and not our criticism or our cutting remarks. And today, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, I speak to you. All our eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around. We're not, we're not here for that. Please listen. If you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, understand that you are living a life that is temporary. A life where you are going to face the full weight of not only your sin, but that of sin nature, rebellion. The Bible declares that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your rebellion, for your sin. He paid in full. He was buried and he has risen from the dead, conquering sin and death, your sin and your death. And the Bible records that those who trust in him, who believe in him, who ask him for forgiveness and trust in his salvation will be forever saved, recipients of eternal life. If that is your heart today, that you want to be saved and forgiven and not only be at peace with God, but have him at peace with you, in the quietness of your heart, tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died for me you were crushed. I believe you were buried and you have risen. Please, Jesus, save my life. If that is truly your heart's prayer, the Bible declares you've just passed from death to life, from blindness to sight. You have become a son or daughter of God and you are now possessor of eternal life. Filled with his Holy Spirit set apart and cleansed. Welcome to the family. We rejoice today that our salvation is not by works, but by faith. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Y'all did marvelous. Great job. Stretch. Because now it's time for us to go into the world. There's a lot of worries out there, family. There's a lot of anxieties, and I find great comfort from us coming together. Do you find comfort in this? Being together as the family of God. Well, now it's time for us to go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. And share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So we'll meet again, same time, same place next week. And do not forget, family, you are loved. Now go show the world, go proclaim, go demonstrate to the world that they are too. If you're here for newcomers,